I'm Thomas Law, the Executive Director of the Technology and Services Industry Association, and welcome to Tectonic, the podcast where we explore what makes technology business models successful in today's world. Before we dive in today, I'd like to share how TSIA can support technology companies in this current economic environment. I know that executive teams are navigating uncertainty. I also know that improving overall profitability has become a cornerstone of company initiatives. We hear it all the time on this podcast. So I am making a unique and time-limited offer. I will personally meet with any executive team to discuss the proven practices we see drive both profitability and growth. To learn more and take advantage of this time-limited offer, simply click on the email link in the show notes. We recently concluded our May conference in Orlando. If you have never attended a TSI event, uh, I am sorry, but you are missing out. And, and here are just a few of the highlights. Uh, we had presentations and panels from companies like Salesforce, Google, Workday, SAP, Cisco, Dell, Gainsight, ServiceNow, Keysight, Schneider Electric, and HPE. And, and that's just one third of the companies that presented. Uh, we had something called Brain Dates. Where we had a new platform that makes it easy for you to connect with industry peers working on the same exact challenges you are. We had executive networking dinners, including an after-conference party where CEO J.B. Wood and I hosted 30 attendees at a speakeasy. That was a lot of fun. And of course, the opportunity to meet your favorite podcast host in person. And I have to tell you, I had so many conference attendees come up to me and say they are loving Tectonic. And when I hear that, it just warms my heart. So to give you a taste of the experience, we are playing the audio from the closing panel discussion at the conference. The topic is the impact of AI on tech business models. J.B. Wood moderates. The panel consists of TSI researchers that are analyzing how these new AI tools are disrupting the way we do business. Enjoy. So who's been in a session this week where AI has come up? You know the hype cycle? You know what, what they call the top of this point of the hype cycle? The peak of over-exaggerated hype, right? Or the peak of expectations. And you know what they call the next phase in the hype cycle? The trough of disillusionment, right? Where do you think AI is right now? You think it's at the peak of hype? Or do you think we still have further to go? Do you remember where you were the first time you used ChatGPT? I remember exactly where I was the first time I saw the World Wide Web. Seriously, I remember I was at an Oracle meeting in Europe, and they came and they said to the whole leadership, there's this thing called the World Wide Web. And we all went, ooh, right? AI is gonna be a game changer. But like so many technologies, we don't yet know how it's all gonna play out. We will go through a trough of disillusionment. We absolutely will. And then we will emerge with killer, killer applications. But we've gotta go through this journey and specifically as it relates to how we engage with customers throughout the life cycle, starting in pre-sales, going through configuration, purchase, implementation, adoption, renewal, expansion. We're going to use AI across that entire life cycle. 
and it's going to have a lot of benefits. But when you think about it, there's both opportunities and there are risks. And we've got the current opportunities and risks, and we have future opportunities and risks. And in our panel today, we're going to talk about sort of the here and now in a couple of these life cycle areas, both the threats and the opportunities. And then we're going to go out there a little bit. We're going to say what could happen, what could happen in these customer engagement processes with AI-driven technology in the future. The reality is there's a lot of things to consider. Every tool that your company uses, that vendor is figuring out how to implement AI somewhere in that tool. You've also got a lot of people back at your company trying to figure out how they can build things using AI, either build them in your product or build separate tools. There's going to be a massive amount of decisions that you're going to have to make about whether to buy or to build and how these things are all going to work together. And as Jim Roth said yesterday, this whole notion of breaking down silos is not made any easier by the fact that CRM is for sales and customer success management is for customer success and PSAs for PS. And so, so there's going to be a lot of sort of this that has to happen. The other thing, and the thing that I actually spend the most time thinking about is both the data and the agreements and policies that are around that data. In the executive board meeting the other day, we were talking about this issue of the data that's needed to run a really well-executed customer lifecycle, starting way back with marketing, identifying prospects and developing them, and moving through a sales cycle, and all those things. And somebody said, well, we may be able to get 80% of all the data we need without ever asking the customer for anything. Really? Yeah, yeah, because we're going to crawl every email that we ever had with them, we're going to transcribe every Zoom meeting we ever had with them. We're going to capture every email and go out and get profiles about those people's backgrounds and everything. And, and I went, wait a minute, wait a minute, right? Right now, we don't know what AI is scrubbing, what AI is learning, right? But there are these little things called privacy laws especially, you know, in Europe. And imagine these companies, a German manufacturing company or a, a French a healthcare company with all of this information and saying, okay, I got to protect this, but yet I want some of the benefits that you're telling me your AI-driven customer engagement model can deliver. So we are going to have this as the trough of disillusionment takes place, we are going to have this issue of the data we need versus the policies and agreements that we have in place to go make all that. Of course, security is going to be a big thing, and employees are going to be a big thing, right? Can we upskill employees to take full advantage of these capabilities? Can we allow the employees to move out of the mundane tasks that maybe we hired them for and move on to the next more advanced set of, of issues? So there's a lot going on. And what we want to do today, as I mentioned, is talk about both the short-term opportunities and the short-term risks and the long-term opportunities and the long-term risks across revenue generation, driving adoption, 
servicing customers, and specifically for those of you who have hardware in your solutions, device interaction. To do that, I want to welcome a great, fun panel of TSIA research experts. Please welcome our panelists. So we've been talking about this panel now for, for weeks, and I'm just going to ask each one of you to walk down and say your name, say what you do, and, and which of these four areas you're going to be opining about. So Jack... Jack Johnson, I'm the Vice President of Research for the Customer Growth and Renewal Practice. Uh, I help members understand how to organize and optimize their operations to expand revenue in their customer base and renew that revenue. I'll be talking about, obviously, revenue generation. Great. Maria? Hi, I'm Maria Manning-Chapman, Vice President of Education Services, and uh, that deals specifically with customer-facing training. And my item on the list there is product adoption. Hi, everybody. My name is Mark Troyan, Senior Director of Customer Success Research. So, obviously, we look at the end-to-end customer journey and the experience along the way. Anybody think AI is going to have a part in that? And we'll talk about servicing our customers and, you know, what this means for them. My name is Kevin Bowers. I'm the Director of Field Service Research, and I'm going to be talking to support both field and remote support for hardware and device interaction. Great. And I'm John Ragsdale. I oversee technology research for TSIA and interact with our partner community. And John is very opinionated on all That's of how the, I ended up here. All, he started collecting by research practice opportunities and threats with AI, and I had opinions on everything. Yeah, I think you broke you broke ChatGPT. I think with all your opinions. Yeah. Well, it wrote a lot of my comments. Yeah. You're oversubscribed. <laughs> so all right. So so again, we're going to sort of break this into. To sort of two waves. Um, we're going to talk about the current, we're going to talk about the future. So let's start with you, revenue generation. How can AI help with current AI technology, yep. and what are the risks of that? I think to, to kind of baseline this conversation, last year when we released the Digital Hesitation book, in that there's a chapter around digital-led sales. And we released an enhanced version of our layer model, which everyone's familiar with, which is AP layer, or RA player, which is analytics applied at the right place at the right time with the right person for the right conversation across layer. We largely wrote that with the context that smart people, data scientists and analysts sitting in teams of people, whether it's centralized or in, in, in various functions, are enabling their respective functions to apply data and analytics to their sales process, right? But this was largely people connecting disparate data and trying to pull it together for a conversation. AI now takes it to another level, and we start to think about sales data and marketing data and service desk data and on and on, renewals data and so on, and we start to connect the ability for machines to literally create the sales place for us based on the various conditions. And so what we're starting to see emerge, and it's still quite a bit of a pioneer effort out there, we're starting to see abilities to kind of enhance propensity renew models, for example. What are the conditions under which contracts will be renewed? Happy, sad, mad customers, uh, various other factors, and we can dynamically route uh, renewal opportunities into the best place for the best outcome, as, a, as an example. Or taking recommendation engines to the next level where we're 
providing customers the opportunity to purchase more other than what they currently have based on propensity to buy another adjacent product, as an example, right? And I think finally what we're starting to see is a hint of personalization conversations. We haven't really seen that flow through, but I think there's aspirations for technology to start to personalize message so that on a 180-day, 60-day, 30-day, whatever, if I understand my persona and I understand what they're interested in, I can personalize the messaging to them that assist through the branding. I think that's kind of the, the, kind of the cutting edge of what's happening today. From the downside, I think there's a lot of hype. There's a lot of uncontrolled enthusiasm, and I worry a little bit about the democratization of AI, where you could imagine every, every sales person on an organization goes to chat GPT, says, hey, what's the best sales play to run for this customer at this time? Might be in line with what that company wants to achieve, but might not be, right? And so all of a sudden we have this proliferation of Mm -hmm. potential strategies that aren't under a unified governance. And I think we could see some of this. Today we see kind of regionalization kind of with this challenge between standard, scalable, and and consistent being challenged by potentially AI providing unlimited opportunities to differentiate. So a couple things. Yeah, I mean, that is happening today. If you go on the LinkedIn sales channels, sales reps are coming up building their own presentations Mm -hmm. off of chat GPT and making claims about things that they're going to be able to do for the customer that have never been vetted by the corporation. Right, right? exactly. So it helped, you know. And we, how we, is that different than it always does? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's easier. <laughs> so, yeah. It's easier. You don't have to field engineer the offer. Now they have a tool that can field engineer the offer for you. But that is, a, that is a super big risk, right? Because it's very easy, and that's, you know, one of the things we all know about chat GPT, it's very easy for it to sound right, whether it is or it's not. Mm-hmm. Right. And so it can come up with very compelling storylines that we may not be able to actualize in the delivery phase. Right. So let's jump over to adoption, because this is a super yeah. interesting subject. So I'm sure probably most of you in this room have a charter to drive product adoption. And in the last four years for education organizations, it has shifted. There was something else that was a primary objective, and now it's truly driving product adoption. Well, in order for that to happen, people have to consume content. You can't drive product adoption if you're not consuming content, because it's that content that's going to give you the skills to interact with the product so that you are using it, driving product adoption, etc. So anybody in a content organization of any type knows that the bane of your existence is that content. Because in an ex-as-a-service environment, we know that product revs are, you know, like every other day, uh, unlike the past where you probably had more of a six-month cycle. So the curse for education organizations, you just have this abundance of content that you constantly have to produce, and it's constantly changing because the product is in a continuous state of rev. So... There is a great solution, and this isn't pie in the sky. I have have members who are using it. So I want everybody to write this down. The name of the platform is called Learn Experts, 
And if you have an education organization at your company and those people are not here, you need to take this to them. And I'm just going to give you a really quick example. So uh, they did a demo with me 10 days ago. And in prep for the demo, what the person did that did the demo is they took a blog that I had written. So they didn't go through you know, all the content I had that was publicly available. They just took a blog, loaded that up so that when I got to the demo, the blog was there. And I'm not kidding you when I say this. She said, okay, now we're going to create a course. Literally five minutes. I kid you not, it took five minutes. And so the way the blog was written, it was, you know, like most blogs, written in sections. Anybody in learning knows that you always start with a learning objective. So what the system had done is it had created a learning objective for each section based on the title of that section. Then there was the content that corresponded with that learning objective, and then at the end of each section was assessment questions, because we need to test your knowledge. Did you learn anything? And literally, all of that came up in five minutes. And so I quickly went through and looked, because like you said, you know, and it's not ChatGBT, it uses generative AI, but it's not ChatGBT, you know, subject to error. And I was amazed amazed at the accuracy. And when you look at content development, so I'll just give you a number, one hour of delivered content. So let's say I'm an instructor, I'm delivering one hour of content. It takes 40 hours to produce that one hour. So now when you have an eight hour day, that's what, I'm not good at math in my head, 320 hours or whatever, that is a lot of time and a lot of money. And what the member that shared with me this platform that it drives down the production time 60%. Wow. And it's phenomenal. And is that text or images? All of it. So to create a course, what you would do is you just upload all your content. It can be existing content that your education organization has. It can be uh, information from a knowledge base. It can be your technical documentation. It can be release notes from product management. Anything and everything. Just load it all up in there and literally five minutes, boom, here's the output. Another one that I want to share is, again, another member is doing this. So the other curse, like I always say to folks, you can put all the content in the world out there, but if people aren't consuming it, then you're not doing anything to drive product adoption. So you have to drive consumption. And so what another member is doing, and I love this concept, they use AI to identify what they call at-risk learners. So an at-risk learner is somebody who came into your system, your portal, your website, whatever it is, maybe three weeks ago, and you haven't seen them since. Or they've completed a course, but you really want them to do another course. So it identifies people that are at risk, meaning low consumers. And then there's automation behind that. So kind of like you were just saying, so that it can identify the at risk learner and send some kind of automated message that says, hey, we haven't seen you in a while. Here's where you left off in your learning assignment, blah, blah, blah. And, And that is awesomeness because, you know, if you have content and people aren't consuming it, you're, you know. So what, what, out of what's out there right now, what could go wrong? So, so there is another example, um, and, and it actually wasn't what went wrong. It actually ended up pretty good, and it was somebody, when you asked about, is it text, is it? So I had another member who is using AI to uh, write scripts for videos, and then using the chatbot real persona to take the text and convert it to audio. And it wasn't that there was anything wrong with it, but the risk is that person did use chat 
GPT. So now that content they produced is in the universe. And so the attorney, their in-house counsel, sent like a cease and desist letter. (laughs) Please stop doing this. We know this looks like great technology, but we don't know what the risks are. We need to figure it out. And, And for a content organization, for education, that's your IP. So you don't want your IP to just be misused or misinterpreted or whatever. So you do need to safeguard it. And that's why I love this platform, Learn Experts, because it's not... Mm. it's yours. It's within your... Yeah, because that's the other thing is this whole issue of currency of data. You know, nobody is as current about your offers and your features and capabilities as you are, right? right? Exactly. But you can go out right now if you're a Microsoft or a General Electric or whatever, and and you can just go to a, a general public, you know, AI tool like GPT, and it will come back with definitive sounding yes, stuff that's two years, two years old, right? So it's got to be your content, and then yes. your content has yep. to get protected. Yep. Otherwise, it's their yep. content, right? Yeah, absolutely. Right. It's everyone's yep. content. And that's the risk for sure, yep. at least right now. All right, so let's jump over to service delivery, right? So now we've got a customer, we've <laughs> got adoption, and we have to take these customers through a life cycle. How's AI helping us? You know, I think about this in the context of scaling the customer success or customer experience, let's say. Overall, listening to Thomas yesterday, he talked a lot about how companies are cutting back. They're certainly not investing in people anymore. So, but at the same time, there's this contradictory message of them being asked to scale their organization, to do more with less. There have been all sorts of motions in the past, things like knowledge base, driving people to self-serve teaching them, train the trainer kind of stuff, right? You know, you teach one person the company, they teach everybody else. There are all kinds of ways you can scale human engagement, but AI is changing all of that. It's rapidly accelerating it, right? Think about it. What Maria just discussed, you could have a beautiful knowledge base in a matter of hours. Yeah. And it's completely on the interaction that you've had over the years within your, say, support services organization or professional services or customer success, right? You could build that very quickly and customers can still self-serve. They see no change, right? There's no apparent difference to them. So that's a great opportunity. Another thing, localization. Products themselves can very easily now be in a local language for people. Everything's been in English for so many years. If you're lucky, the user documentation or training materials, again, maybe you've got it in two or three languages. Now you can have it in any number of languages, right? Again, it'll help with things like call deflection. There'll be less confusion. There's all kinds of great benefit there. The other thing from a pure customer success management perspective is, and we talked about this a little bit with sales, it's the sister to what Jack talked about, which is creating success plans and plays. Those go-to-market strategies on the post-sale side Plays can be dynamically updated as they happen. So if you come up with a new motion and deploy, for example, in professional services, a new method, you know, you modify your methodology and you have a new way to implement a particular feature, function, or tool, great, that can just go into the playbook and be immediately applied to every customer, right? So you no longer have to have, you know, this person teach this team and then this team over here and then they all have to change the methodology documentation and redo the playbooks, no, that's all done in, you know, in a flash. But of course, with that comes some downsides, right? We talked about them just a minute ago. JB, you brought it up. You have to be careful. This all has to be done behind the curtain, behind the firewall. It's your data. It's your information. It is your secret sauce. It's literally your proprietary information. So 
I've been working with a couple of members. They've been telling us how they're building this capability into their product. For example, we have a member who creates next best action software. This is brilliant because now it used to be you'd take a whole bunch of data and feed it into the algorithm and then it would spit out an offer. Well, now that can all be done dynamically. You don't have to think about what are all the parameters and do I tweak this, tune that, pull this lever this way, this, no, it's all done dynamically. But with that comes the risk of you can't just get this stuff on the internet. You, you don't want your pricing exposed. You don't want your proprietary information, anything that's a patent, you know, right? And so you have to be really careful because, especially with services organizations, you're the ones out there on the front line deploying all this great technology and providing value for your customers and customers, right? So that's the biggest risk for sure. Hey, John, one of the things, again, Jim Roth said it yesterday, one of the, the issues is these data silos, right? So every organization has got its data. How big an opportunity is AI to solve the data silo problem? We could have solved that a long time ago. We've had incredible AI-based search technology. Mm -hmm. They're only implemented in a silo. So how many enterprise-wide implementations do you see? Very, very few. So I was just discussing that with Caveo yesterday. They're doing a lot of work on the commerce side. They're doing a lot of work on the support side. There's a whole world in between of content that's <laughs> not being indexed. It's not being leveraged. Customers can't access it. Employees can't access it. This is not new technology to solve that problem. It's a culture problem. It's not a technology problem. Mm -hmm. Great. Okay. Let's talk specifically about devices. So the risks. The risks are hardware services may fall behind. So we know from between field and support, we've done about 210 benchmarks in the last 18 months. And we know from those benchmarks that 65% of support organizations are run as a cost center. 45% of field service organizations are run as a cost center. So they don't have a seat at the table. So when you don't have a seat at the table, you get scraps. As you mentioned, we're at the peak of inflated expectations. Right. So money's flowing in the organization for these AI-type projects. Our hardware services are going to get a bite from the Apple. So that's the risk. So you've got to educate yourself and know your use case. Data's a problem. Don't worry about the data. Know your use cases and, and get an opportunity to take a bite at the Apple. So that's the risk. I'm sure as everyone has attended all 4,000 AI sessions uh, this, <laughs> this uh, week that there was at least five quips about Skynet, Terminator, AI taking over the world. But as far as benefit for hardware services, the roadmap was made 55 years ago in 2001 Space Odyssey. In that movie, Hal's talking to David Bowman and he says, excuse me, the AE35 unit's going to fail in two and a half days. You have to replace it. So what is that? That's telemetry. That's predictive maintenance using AI. They go out and take the unit out, replace it. They're doing diagnostics, and everything's great. And they can't figure it out. So they send that telemetry to what's a, basically a, a virtual twin of how down on Earth. He runs the diagnostics and says, well, we didn't find anything either. So they're like, oh, we'll go back and replace it. We want to see when it fails. Well, how kills the guy that replaces it. But <laughs> <laughs> we, we see that. <laughs> Telemetry, predictive maintenance, looking at root cause, digital twin, all these things were laid out 55 years ago. Wow. And we're not there yet because we only 32% of the, in, well, 26% of the install base is connected right now through the benchmark data, right? And that's down year over year about 5%. So we don't have telemetry. We don't have data to mine to figure out the predictive analytics. We've got to educate ourselves in hardware services because we have a roadmap that's 55 years old. 
<laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah. you know, like I was saying before, I mean, data is the fuel mm-hmm. for all this. Mm-hmm. But that data, we have to be thinking very, very sort of deeply about not only the sources of that data, sure. but the policies and the agreements around that data. And we've all lived through, especially as the, as the cloud really took root, customers who just did not want telemetry to leave the four walls of, of their building, right? And that very same thinking, whether it's legislatively induced or whether it's by the company policy or whatever, is really ultimately going to be the barrier to how much we can do. Now, you can try to go around the customer's private data, right, or what they force you to keep private. You can try to go around it and find other data sources that are public to fill in the blanks. But the reality is the fuel that will determine how big of a fire we can create with AI, you know, that is like the kind of work. Because you think about how we're going to go out and have conversations with thousands or 10,000s or hundreds of thousands of customers to get them to understand as we go through every step in this journey. Ah, we found out that if we have this data, we can do that. Now we found out if we have this data, we can do that. I mean, that process of identifying the data sources and getting the agreements in place is something that we're going to have to do or we're going to be stuck, you know, in the disillusionment cycle for, for a long time. Do you have any thoughts on... Well, I think we've been talking about AI for a decade. I think we've had a lot of hype and very few examples of real AI. I think that's why everyone is so enamored with this iterative chat because you can see it, you can experience it. And as you said, it's democratized. Everybody can touch it. So it's really pushing forward our expectations and really what we hope to see. I think the good news is there has been a huge difference between big companies with big budgets and teams of data scientists and what they were able to do and everyone else. And what is so amazing to me is what is available out of box. So service is never going to be at the top of the list for the data scientists. We had five vendors in the Interact Zone who had either already released or will be in the next two months releasing an iterative chat product. You don't need a data scientist. You don't need to program anything. You can buy it. It is all right there to plug in and use. There's no security risk because your data never leaves that large language model. So I think the availability, if you are open to it and we stop building shit ourselves, <laughs> we've, got, we've got huge... Yeah, I mean, is it, is it safe to say the issue is not going to be the technology? No, no. Mm-mm. I think another opportunity or challenge, and Jack opened with this, these tools are only as good as the questions you ask. And the skill set that we do not teach in schools or universities or in companies is Socratic questioning. Mm -hmm. What is the art to asking the right question? How do you ask the same question multiple ways to triangulate information, which as researchers is what we do? How do we teach that skill to help them ask the questions the right way to get the best possible answer? So a lot of upscaling potential there. I think Are you criticizing my my moderation? (laughs) (laughs) I think the biggest short-term threat is we're already in the trough of despair, and that is the young, 
employees who are innovative and started using ChatGPT in their everyday lives, and they got an email from corporate saying, you're not allowed to use this, you can't have it on your computer, we're gonna fire you if you're using it, they're looking for another job. And maybe we're not in the best economy, but talented consultants, talented success managers, talented support engineers, they're always in demand. Yeah. So I heard it here <laughs> that I got an email saying I couldn't use it. I've already been using yeah. it for a month. Um, I'm looking for a new job. Yeah. I think that governance model that I referred to a little bit is really critical in terms of, you know, we have no idea how to control this cat yet, right? I mean, it's just everywhere and it's growing daily and what you can imagine you can do with it. So how do we, how do we organize so that we can productively innovate, right, towards a common goal that's secure and the data is protected, but it, it could get out of control so fast. And I think that's a dynamic tension, right, Yeah. today. All right, so we've talked a lot about sort of current situation and what we're hearing, as you think about what could be, right, we move over from the current to the, the future, right? What are some of the thoughts you folks have had around what could be? I'm stuck on Kevin's guy that got killed. <laughs> by Hal. By Hal. I don't want to go there. Not but, our Hal. Oh, yeah. Different Hal. That, that Hal. Our Hal will be yeah, fine, no, no. right? He'll, he, he'll be great. He's going to offer, he's going to build an offer that'll be, protect us, right? Right, right? I imagine, you know, I, I focus on expand and renew all day long in, in, in this job, and I, and I wonder what is the life expectancy of renewal, for example, right? We talk a little bit kind of kind of optimistically around product-led growth, right? Which is really an experience where we offer a product that's easy to use, easy to sample, convert them to a pay model, and all of a sudden it grows, and then, you know, however we build it, we can expand it. What if the product is renewing itself, right? It, you know, we've got a SaaS product. It theoretically understands all of the versions of its product that has been deployed and subscribed to. What if it can see which customers have paid the credits that are due to access it? Can it automatically turn it off? Do we move to essentially a consumption-based model that no longer needs this human interaction of funding event, but we, we move to more of a perpetual access event and the product controls itself, right? I could imagine that that could be quite intimidating, right? And I think about the Tesla car <laughs> driving down 101 with a person asleep at the wheel. The downside of this is, is that we could get out of control really fast. We could crash and cause some real damage if we don't have kind of oversight and governance and human intervention and understanding of what's going on with this. So it's really difficult to kind of break our minds open to what the potential is, but I see that as a real challenge moving forward. Yeah, I 100% I agree. I think that this idea of consumption-based pricing models and product-led growth, which we've all been talking about and a lot of enterprises have said, oh, that's a consumer thing, right? That's not for me. I think AI is going to put that on the table. And if you think about already companies like Google Cloud or in theory, there is no L and there is no R. There's only A and E. Mm -hmm. There's only adopt, expand, adopt, expand. And the more you drive adoption and you have AI tools to drive the adoption and it's unfolding the value of that solution in the way that's best for the customer and passing paywalls as it goes, right. Mm -hmm. right? Then you say, wow, we've automated adoption, we've automated expansion, and there is no renewal, right? right? So, I mean, it could have a, an extremely profound effect 
on sales and marketing costs. It could have a, an extremely profound effect on org structures, it's roles, like yeah. exactly. you know, where literally adoption becomes everything. Yeah. Right? And that's driving the growth of individual users. It's driving the growth of accounts. You know, we've seen, I mean, companies like Slack, and we've already seen examples of how you can get viral adoption of enterprise tools. But we've been so in love with the upfront contracts. We've been so in love with three-year lock-ins on these subscriptions and pay at the beginning of each right. year. But there's going to be new companies coming into every sector who are built it's for a different awesome. world. Right. Mm-hmm. So give me a wild thought around adoption. Yeah, so what I think about is the tendency in, again, content is to create this monolithic thing. It's a three-day course. It's a 350-page manual. It's just this big, monstrous thing. And I need to go through all of it when maybe all I need is chapter 10. So what I get excited about is truly personalized, individualized learning. And going back to what John said, it would be highly dependent on asking the right questions and whether I'm the person and I'm asking of myself or a questionnaire or something is created. But just think about that. If you could go into a system, either you ask certain questions or maybe there's eight or 10 questions that are asked of you. So then immediately the AI is going to assess what does this person know? What can they already do? Where do they need help? Where are their skills weak? Where are their skills strong? And then you serve something up just for me. It's not a course that's one size fits all and, you know, 2,000 people go to this same course. It's exactly what I need because the biggest problem is retention. If I try and teach a 350-page manual, I'm going to remember maybe two pages. If I get the training I need at the moment I need it because I'm stuck and can't do something I need to do in the product but I can immediately get stuck based on my unique skill set, that's amazing. And then what you think about is, is we all look at accelerating first time to value. Okay, if I can get those questions answered specific to me and my needs like that, that's, that's gold. And customer experience. How much better am I going to feel about your product? I'm going to have a positive experience with it because I learned what I needed to learn. And when you look at the skills gap in the world, a gentleman in my advisory board went to the World Economic Forum last week. It's something like 40 million jobs are going to be open in, I don't know, what the next five years, whatever the time span was, because people don't have the skills. Well, if I can make that known and AI can start serving up that content to close that skill gap, then, I mean, think of the implications for your company. You know, I don't have to spend, you know, months trying to skill you up, which is time and labor intensive. I can get exactly what I need, supplement what I already know, close those gaps, and do a better job tomorrow. One of the things that I think about is that we in general, as an industry, we use the word outcomes a lot, yeah. but we really don't sell and deliver outcomes. And I've said for many, many years, I don't know how you can talk about outcomes without talking about industries, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And so when we say you should buy this or upgrade this or you should use this feature, we do a shitty job at saying because right. in healthcare, this feature is super important or this business capability is super important, we just say our software does this. Right. 
and AI is going to allow us to both verticalize mm-hmm. what we sell and, and what our products do. And even, I think, more interestingly, AI is going to know a lot about the individual company we're serving Mm -hmm. and the job role of the person we're talking to. And we're going to be able to say, this feature is important for you to learn because Maria Manning Chapman, who is a registered nurse at this hospital in Kansas City, Missouri, right? It'll know exactly why I should be using it. That's exactly right. And to me, that just opens up so many possibilities. And as an employee as well, not just, you know, the outcome for the company, but the outcome for the employee. I mean, in terms of job satisfaction, the ability to do your job better, all that's at your fingertips. Yeah. I mean, I've seen technology already, AI-driven technology, where you can just type in the industry and then the product capability, and it will draw the map between right. what's going on in that industry, why, the, and how a product capability drives the strategies and the business and mm-hmm. technical capabilities that are required. And it's going to get to the point where it can be customer-specific. Yeah. Okay, so give me a service delivery wild-ass guess. So I've seen varying reports out in the media about how much technology companies are spending on AI today. It's varied from $100 million to $200 million, uh, excuse me, billion, rather, already. The train's left the station. Everybody, it's a hot topic. We all know that. We'll all be in Vegas for Envision. I would place a future bet that by 2027, there'll be over a trillion dollars spent on AI. The spending on that will outpace all other technology spending combined. So I'm going to see if I can place a future bet on that one. we're there and go collect in a couple years. <laughs> um, but I, I really think it is the future of everything, services, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. The scary stuff is oh, the over-personalization, right? PII is a real thing. And there's a point, especially in certain regulated industries, what does that mean? But at the end of the day, if you're able to provide the service that was delivered, we talk a lot about, you know, in the pre-sale motion, you talked about a little bit, it's difficult to predict exactly what the end state's going to be, right? You have to do a lot of things. You have to deploy the technology and the services properly to get to the end state. And most companies never get there. You're constantly trying to get Mm -hmm. to that desired business outcome, right? AI will make that much easier because every play that's run, every implementation play that's run will be there. You'll be able to predict risks before they even occur and hopefully address them, right? Support queues should go down because if a product is failing, it'll get fixed automatically. So whether it's software, whether it's hardware, doesn't matter. It'll just get fixed before it ever actually, you know, anybody knows there's a pain. So I I can see the future where you will truly buy a tailored product that will meet your company's needs and your customers will have the best possible individual tailored customer experience and you won't have to do a thing. You won't have to update a playbook. You won't have to um, have tech support. The machines will heal themselves <laughs> or something like yep. that, yep. right? Yep. Um, it, it's going to be incredible, but a trillion dollars, 2027. We're not recording this, are we? No. Okay, good. No. <laughs> okay, what about data and devices. Where does this take us? All right, well, Mark stole my thunder a bit. But um, so in support and field in, in hardware services, we have this total cost to serve framework, and it really addresses the four ways you address equipment. It either fixes itself, self-healing. Maybe the customer fixes it himself through self-service. Maybe assisted support fixes it remotely, or we ultimately have to go on site, right? The most expensive way and terrible way. 
Right now, from the benchmark in industry data, we know that that self-healing, where the equipment heals itself, no one's the wiser, everyone's happy, is less than 5% of the time, right? So in the future, I'd be willing to bet that's the majority of the time, right? And, and then maybe 30 40%, and the next 20% is probably all the knowledge and everything's curated and great so the customer can fix it themselves. But we're always going to have to go on site, right? So with telemetry, with AI, we'll know the right person that needs to go at the right time. They'll have everything they need. They'll print the part in their van on the way there, swap it out, and go. So they'll have all this extra capacity to, do, to drive expansion adoption. So maybe field service engineers are going to be layer engineers first, and then while the part's printing, they, they, they expand the account, swap it out, and go home. That's maybe where it's going to go. The risk is, is like you said, when everything's mass customized, everything's an end of one, how do you support that? If every product's a one-off, how are you going to support that? Because if the customer says they want it, engineering says, heck yeah, we can build that, we can build anything. Supply chain can get it because they you know through AI where all the parts they need is. So that's going to be like kind of a mass customization support paradox, right? Everybody gets what they want, but then we can't support what they get. I just had this epiphany. You said print the part on the way to the customer site. There's 3,000 people at a conference on supply chain a couple of miles away. Those people are all out of a job. Yeah. Right? <laughs> <laughs> all right. So let's take some questions. You know, it's funny because the, um, you know, there's this future and then there's the reality, reality right? right? Mm -hmm. And it, it, there's an interesting balance of things. But one of the ones that I think is super important is all this sounds great, but are there ethical dilemmas, mm. <laughs> right? And specifically, like in customer success, I mean, where you're, you know, but you could say the same thing in pre-sales, where you're getting a lot of information, right? Uh, both personal information, you know, business information, IP, strategy, whatever. So what are the ethical dilemmas of using AI and customer success? Yeah, I mean, think about it. You are under NDA, right? When you sign a contract, we're under NDA with our members. And the same is true with any technology company. So you have to make sure that that proprietary information never leaves your little mini ecosystem together, right? The two of you, it's a partnership. It's like a marriage, right? You can't break that bond. So yeah, that's the number one concern is, I mean, think about it. I'm tracked everywhere I go. Every app on my phone knows where the hell I am, which drives me crazy sometimes. I mean, it's convenient, right? Because content can be tailored to you. They know you, content can be tailored. But there are times that that's not appropriate. And I do think there are risks around um, leaking IP, Certainly, there are other security risks, like real security beyond IP. So you have to be careful with that. But the thing to consider is when you're using these AI tools, if it's in the tool set that you've got behind your firewall, what you feed into it, you just have to make sure it doesn't get past it. Mm -hmm. right? You can't be using ChatGPT on the internet right. Right, to write quotes. Mm -hmm. uh, that's not a good idea. Or your price list gets leaked immediately. right? right. Yep. So you can't do that. You have to just... I think the security risk is a real thing, and I think that the, what information is fed into the algorithm has to be yep. not PII, not proprietary information. 
Yeah, because I mean, there, there is a point of personalization that's too much. Yeah, absolutely. Well, and that is one of the risks. We were talking about that with Europe tends to be a little stricter with the privacy thing. And it came down to if you're asking questions to get content served up to you, does that in any way implicate, like if you, you're doing an assessment and that score is now available, that that doesn't get passed along with whatever else might get passed along because that test score is considered proprietary or private or whatever word you want to use. Mm -hmm. So that there's implications even in that way where it just seems pretty innocuous, but you know, so, you know, the the next question is, you know, is there such thing as introducing AI and baby steps? And I want to, I want to start with something both actually you said, and, and, you know, you brought up the trillion dollar forecast, right? A trillion dollars spent on AI. That, that's one way to think about it. The other way to think about it is it could be zero because AI is ubiquitously built into everything. you know mm-hmm. every single mm-hmm. thing, right? And you were talking about buying stuff and quit building stuff. Mm-hmm. And so when you think about introducing AI and baby steps, mm-hmm. right, I think there's something in there, right? Because the tools providers were already using are hard at work, have been hard at work, trying to figure out how AI increases their total value prop. So is the right way to think about the baby steps is to think about your current and future tool providers? So when I used to do a lot of workshops on transformation with members, and we always created a crawl, walk, run roadmap, And the crawl was, let's audit every technology you have today, what capabilities are there you're not using, and use the hell out of it. The next step is who is in their ecosystem that you can bring in some cool capabilities, and then ultimately, which is probably three years away, what is completely net new that